found out that Tyson uh, didn't know if he would be able to be here this morning, I looked down at the text and realized that I would much rather preach on Revelation than head coverings and submission. So, um, so that's what we're going to do today. Um, we're going we're gonna to talk about dragons. Um, really excited about it. Um, so this morning we are. We're going to be in Revelation 12. Take a little bit of a detour from our 1 Corinthians sermon series. And it's interesting Revelation is one uh, often, for most people, one of the most confusing books of the Bible. There's a lot of reasons for that. And if you're familiar with Christianity at all, like, you know this, right? Uh, if you start down a Revelation YouTube channel, man, it is a wormhole. It's a rabbit hole. Like you, you will look up three hours later and be like, I don't know, the guy from the History Channel's there with ancient aliens. It's a mess. There's websites, Facebook pages, podcasts, blogs, innumerable books, sermons, all telling us how Revelation is unfolding right before our very eyes. The problem is, people have been telling us this for well over 200 years now, and we just never seem to get there, right? We've seen Russia rise and fall and rise. We've seen Israel become a nation. We've seen princes come to power. We've seen princes come crashing down. We've seen political alliances. We've seen blood moons come and go. And while I have a lot to say about this particular book, a lot of it will have to wait for another time. You can catch me after church, catch me on a Wednesday. But at some point, I think when we look at the book of Revelation, we have to do something. We have to ask ourselves if we're understanding or reading this book in its most practical and intended manner. So let me give you a little context to begin. Revelation's authorship is commonly attributed to the Apostle John. Uh, there's a lot of uh, there's some, some, some external non-biblical evidence that suggests that uh, John wrote Revelation in late, late in the first century, so maybe toward the end of his life, 90 AD, something like that, during the reign of Domitian. But a lot of internal evidence, as you kind of read the text, to, to me seems to make a, a stronger case that it may have happened uh, before the fall of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD. Uh, the earlier date is closer to where I tend to fall on this, and it's kind of when I, I may, may believe it was given, and as such, it's the context that we're going to be going through this book today. But I do want to give you this encouragement, regardless of what you think about when it was written, or what you think it's about, the three points that we're going to draw from the text today, everybody can agree with, right? So that's going to be our point of unity uh, on this this morning. So before we get started, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in all of your glory. The very fact that you have condescended to us and given us your revealed word should never be lost on us. We pray now, as we read and study your words, that you will give us wisdom and humility. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you would, please stand with me as we read Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. 
She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his church have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd been, who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she was to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the stands of the sea. Church, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So, so there was a lot, right? There's a lot in those 17 verses. So I'm going to give us a real quick recap. I'm going to run through this. There's a woman, there's stars, there's birth, there's a dragon, there's heads, horns, eyes, demons, angels, floods, and war. People say this is difficult. So if there's one thing I've learned, it's that when things get confusing, I want to find something that I know and I'm going to stick with it. Right? So when life gets difficult, when life gets confusing, I'm going to find the consistent thing that I can see, and I'm going to hang on to it. So this morning, as we read this text, study this text, I want to talk to you about dragons. Did you know that dragons are found everywhere in all the Earth's cultures, mythology, and history? It's true. Watch this. The Greeks had the hydra. The Egyptians had the apep. The Chinese have the Lung, which is the highest-ranking dragon creature in the Chinese animal hierarchy. Sam, the Koreans have the cockatrice. The Norsemen, the Celtics, the Iranians, the Indians, the Albanians, the Slavs, and Russians all have dragons deep in their mythology. And it makes, it makes me ask the question, why? Why does every culture have these large, scary, fiery beasts? And I think we find the answer to this in the ancient Near East. The ancient Near East 
includes areas such as like Mesopotamia, Babylonian, uh, Babylon, Babylon, Persia, Assyria, Israelite nations, right? Kind of that whole Fertile Crescent area. And it's in this region that we find the earliest, most prolific use of dragons in literature and in art. It's the same region that Abraham was called to follow Yahweh. It's the same region that Noah's Ark was um, finally touched down after the flood. It's the same region that the Garden of Eden once stood. If you haven't jumped ahead of me here, this is what I'm saying. Why are there dragons in every culture's mythology all through history? Because every culture descends um, descends from Adam and Eve. The same Adam and Eve who, long ago, the great serpent seduced into sin. The same Adam and Eve who who God promised would produce a seed that would crush the head of this serpent. In other words, every nation has a dragon because there's a fact behind the fiction of dragons. Behind the mythology and the stories of these nations, there's a real, fierce, fiery dragon seeking to destroy mankind. It's the same dragon that we read about just now. So this morning, I hope to bring a little life to dragon fiction uh, as we study this text. And I want to do this in three ways. The first is this. I want you to know that this dragon has lost a very real war. The second is that this dragon no longer has a voice. And the third is that this dragon still has teeth. So the first point, the dragon has lost the war. Look back with me at verses 1 through 6. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So right off the bat, we get this vision. We see this woman. She's clothed with the sun. The moon's under her feet. She has 12 stars on her crown. You know, and one of the tricks to to understanding Revelation is to know your Old Testament well uh, and to really understand Daniel well. And if you remember, there's a guy in the Old Testament who was known to be quite the dreamer. Remember, his name was Joseph. And Joseph had this dream, and it it might have been the straw that broke the camel's back with the family. Joseph was the the beloved son. He had that great coat, right? Very sharp, very dapper. Um, and, and, And Joseph would come in with these dreams to all these brothers who did not like him at all. If you remember the dream of Joseph, he dreamt that the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were all bowing down before him. At this point, the entire family, including the dad, said, okay, this is a little overkill. You're saying we're all going to worship you? We get to Revelation and we see what? The sun, the moon, and 12 stars encompassing this woman. What we're getting is an image of Israel, of faithful Israel. The woman represents the 12 12 stars, the 12 tribes of Israel, the sun, the moon. The woman is Israel. And this woman is about to give birth. However, the dragon has come down. 
And this dragon, like the beast in Daniel's prophecy, shows up with seven heads, ten horns. He's kind of a combination of all the characteristics that Daniel has for his beasts. He's the ultimate beast. He's waiting outside her womb, ready to devour the baby. And this really kind of gives us our first historical marker. You know, one of the tricks of Revelation is you're trying to find some points to anchor down on, you know, as you're reading through it. This gives us a really good anchor point. When Jesus was born, what happens? When Jesus comes from Israel, what is Satan trying to do? Devour the baby. You remember, he uses Herod and Harrison's an edict to have all the children under two years old killed. We see the same concept with Pharaoh, right? Throw the babies and boys into the Nile, right? Trying to, trying to kill the seed so the seed can't overcome him. The great dragon uses Rome in an attempt to snatch this child from the womb of Israel. And Satan isn't alone. In verse 4, we see he brings down a third of the angels with him. And so he awaits for this child, Satan and his angels, that he might devour the seed. But the child is born. And this child rules with a rod of iron and is caught up to the throne of God, which would be the ascension, right? He goes up and sits in the throne. And the woman, faithful Israel, flees into the wilderness for 1,260 days, or about three and a half years, which we'll come back to in the third point. So what's the recap? What's John giving us in this section, kind of setting this, this, starting this chapter off? What's he explaining? Here it is. The seed promised in Genesis 3, the seed that would crush the head of the serpents, has finally come from Israel. And despite Satan's many attempts to devour and end the line, think of Cain and Abel, think of Saul and David, think of all of these attempts, this man-child, this Savior, has risen to sit at the right hand of God. Which means, and this is our first point, the dragon has lost the war. The dragon failed to devour the seed that would crush his head. No matter how many nations this dragon wore as a crown, no matter how close he monitored the birthing pains and the contractions, no matter how much he pursued, the seed was victorious, the dragon loses. And church, we live in a time where it can very much feel as if Satan is winning. It only takes a brief glance at the news, uh, social media, your neighborhoods, uh, to feel as if we're losing to the great dragon. But John is here to remind us that just, just, this just is not true. Because Christ has already won. Satan has already lost and so the, 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 the point of this first section from John is, lift up your head, church. The dragon has lost. Christ is victorious. So 1 through 6 tells us that Satan has lost the war. And that's the first point I really want to draw from this text. The second is that because he has lost, he no longer has an audience with the Father to accuse us. In other words, this dragon has not only lost the war, but this dragon has lost his voice. Look with me again at 7 through 12. And if verses 1 through 6 were, were a look at Christ's, um, at, at an earthly view of the victory of the seed, right? An earthly view. We're about to hear the same exact story, but we're going to get it from a heavenly perspective, a cosmic perspective. 7 through 12. 
Now war arose in heaven, and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. So Christ defeats Satan and death, and the war is over, and his demons are cast out. So from the first perspective, we have Christ down on earth, born ascending to the throne, right? And we get that perspective. The next perspective is the heavenly perspective, the heavenly battle. Satan and his demons, they are cast down. We see in verse 10 that all authority now belongs to Christ. And the accuser, Satan, the serpent, the dragon, who accuses brethren day and night, has been cast down. If you remember the narrative of Job, there's an exchange that happens between God and Satan. And we really get this idea that, that Satan has access in some way to the heavenly courts, right? Some way he has access to the throne room. Remember Job 11, 1, 8 through 11, it says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You bless the works of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all he has and he will curse you to your face. You see, this, this great accuser is in the courts trying to accuse the righteous, trying to accuse those that God has called his own. If you remember the story, Satan, go, God gives Satan license to go after Job, right? He goes after Job and takes everything. You see what looks like a righteous man suffer consequences of sin that maybe he doesn't deserve. And then we get to Christ, the perfect Job, the greater Job, the greater Joseph, the greater Moses, the greater David. All of those things, who truly knows no sin, who truly has no sin, gets the same treatment. Everything Satan can throw at him. In both cases, Job and Jesus, they are vindicated. Jesus, though, is vindicated by Satan being cast out of the heavenly court. By Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. So instead of someone accusing us before God, what do we have? We have Jesus interceding on our behalf. Satan no longer has an audience with God. He can no longer accuse us before the throne of God. Instead, we have Jesus, the child of the woman, the promised seed, interceding on our behalf. Instead of an accuser, we have one who pleads our case. I guess, you know, at this point, it's a good time to ask a question. The question is this, do you recognize this? Does this give us confidence does the knowledge give us hope in a dying world? 
Or does your sin make you feel like you're left to your own devices? Left to do enough good so that you might outweigh the accusations of Satan? Because, friends, that's not the gospel. The gospel is great. The gospel is that the hero defeats the dragon and saves his bride. The gospel is that Jesus slays the serpent, the great dragon, and secures his bride. Look with me at Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So catch this. Christ cleanses and prepares his bride. The bride does not do it herself. So if you're in Christ, Satan no longer has power to accuse. Through the work of Christ, he has lost his voice to all who are covered by the blood of the Lamb. And that's the gospel. Instead of Satan sitting in the throne room accusing you, Christ sits the right hand of the Father and speaks on your behalf. Let me say it one more time because we need to hear it. Satan has lost his voice and he can no longer accuse those in Christ. And this was the second point I want us to see this morning. First, that the war is won. Christ has won the victory. Satan has been cast down. Second, the seed of the woman has prevailed. I'm sorry, the seed of the woman has prevailed. And second, that the dragon has lost his voice to accuse. But there is something we should take heed of. This failed dragon, he knows these things as well. And this brings us to our third point this morning, that this dragon still has teeth. Look with me at um, verse 12 through 17. Therefore rejoice, O heavens. And you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child. But the woman who was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. So we've snapped out of this heavenly perspective of the war between Satan and his demons and the heavens. And we really should read verse 13 as if it comes straight out of verse 6. So if you remember, the dragon was pursuing the woman, which represents faithful Israel, for 1,260 days, three and a half years. Or as we see in verse 14, and as a direct quote from Daniel, a time, times, and half a time. And the Lord protects and provides for faithful Israel. Now, I believe that Israel has actually been warned by this in Matthew 25, 15 and 16. He says, this is Jesus. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. In other words, when the armies of Rome come, you go. And interestingly enough, this is exactly what the Judean church did in 66 AD. They sought refuge in Pella for three and a half years when Rome showed up to squash a Jewish rebellion. At that time, Christians were still kind of under the subheading of Jews. So Nero took out his fury. He spewed out wrath out of his mouth like water upon the unbelieving Jews who absorbed the floods of wrath meant for the Christians while faithful Israel fled to the mountains. Three and a half years, Nero's dead, the temple is destroyed, and effectively ends the Jewish threat as a uh, nation for Roman aggression for a while. So what happens after this? Look at 17. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commands of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. So when Satan fails to crush the church in its infancy, he's furious and goes off to chase them throughout the world. You know, one of the common strategies of dying and failing tyrants is on display in these verses, right? Uh, Think of Hitler, think of Stalin, think of Mao, think of Castro, any others you can think of. When their world begins to crash around them, what do they do? They burn everything to the ground with them. Friends, comrades, subjects, infrastructure, children. Satan knows his time is short. He's lost the war. He has lost his voice. And now Christ the victor is slowly cleaning up the mess and putting down pockets of rebellion. So the dragon, in his death throes, will seek to destroy and devour as quickly and frantically as he can. Something we need to be aware of. We shouldn't ever mistake death for losing a war. See, that's the mistake that Satan made with Christ on the cross. But it was actually in death that Christ defeats the great dragon. Remember verse 11? And they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death uh, my, my dad told me this line. We were talking about this uh, a couple weeks ago, and, and I don't know if he quoted it from someone else or if it's his, but he says, the church is often called to be food for lions. We don't win by living, but by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, even unto death. Friends, a dragon is real. There's an all-too-painful reality to the facts behind the fiction of dragons. But lift up your head, church. The dragon has already lost this war. The dragon has already lost his voice. He can no longer accuse those in Christ. But this dragon still has his teeth. And to this day, he will pursue in his death throes the offspring of faithful Israel, which is the church, the bride of Christ. So thank you, Lord, for the blood of the Lamb. And may we hold to the word of our testimony even unto death. It's a very appropriate time for us to transition to the table this morning. Um, when we first talked about preaching, I, I didn't realize it was Communion Sunday, and then Tyson said, are you, are you good with transitioning into the supper? And I thought, there's not a better sermon to transition into the supper than Christ who dies for his people. So the Lord's Supper, 
is a remembrance of Christ's defeat over Satan, of his being cast down, of our Savior's right to sit at the right hand of the Father and intercede on our behalf of those who have put their trust in him. And we celebrate a great irony in that death, that in death, death is defeated. And I would warn you, however, that this is a family meal. In other words, this table is only for those who are sincere, instructed, and accountable members of the church of Christ. Not a Presbyterian table, not a Baptist table, a Christian table. The Apostle Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 11, 27-29, Whoever therefore eats this, the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. And then, and examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So, if you are an unbeliever, if you're an unrepentant believer, if you do not understand the meaning of salvation in Christ by faith alone, if you're not a member of Christ's church, we ask that you do not participate in this meal. We ask you to remain among us and use the time to ask God to give you light and understanding. But if you are, if you are a believer who is a repentant believer, one who is a member of Christ's church, then we ask you to approach the table in remembrance of what Christ did, defeating death on our behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word even when it may be difficult to understand. We ask that you give us courage as we suffer the death throes of the great dragon, that serpent of old, Satan. May we be tr truly keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus even unto death. We thank you for the table set before us, one that came at a costly price of your son. We pray that we may never take it for granted. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who died and rose again and intercedes on our behalf. Amen. Amen.